Welcome to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2006. This episode is entitled God and Business. When asked what God thinks of business, one pastor said, not much. This is an all too common perspective, not only for pastors, but for Christians in the marketplace as well. Enjoy this presentation on God's perspective of business and the true meaning of both the Great Commission and the mandate for man to rule the earth. Well, good morning, and I'm honored to be with you guys and talk to you a little bit about God and business. For many people, those words don't go together, God and business. In fact, I was having a conversation recently with a gentleman out in California at a, at a conference I was presenting at, and he said, I had a conversation with my pastor about God and business. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And uh, I said, well, what would your pastor say? He said, well, I asked the pastor the question, what do you think God thinks about business? And the pastor said, not much. Said, well, that's kind of discouraging. If you have a perspective of business that God doesn't really care much about it, then that relegates business to no more than making money. And you take that money and supposedly sow into ministries and churches so they can do something that God values. And that makes it very difficult for those of us in the marketplace to see any significance to our life. In fact, what happens is we, we feel like we're second-class citizens because the really important people to God are the people that are doing God's work, right? So if we don't think we're doing God's work, then we really don't count. So that's a common problem. This is an article here by a pastor named James White. It's, uh, he's been interviewed by, um, by World Magazine. The occasion of this interview is the publishing of his new book uh, called Serious Times. Uh, in the course of this interview, a question is asked of, of Pastor White. And the question is, what should be the church's chief priority? What should be the church's chief priority? And he answers it this way. I'm going to read it to you. He says, the idea of priority can be taken in many ways. The church's fivefold purpose, worship, ministry, evangelism, community, discipleship, the chief aim, aim of a human life to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So he's giving you some options of, to look at there. He says, but I will answer at face value. The chief, church's chief priority should be evangelism. Now listen to his rationale. We have all of eternity to worship the living God. We have all of eternity to grow in our relationship with God and knowledge of God. We have all of eternity to enjoy community with God and his people. Only here and now can we evangelize. In other words, his perspective is our job on earth is simply to populate heaven. Well, that's got some implications to it. First of all, if that's true, then what we need to be doing is saving people and then shooting them. Shoot them out of here. Okay, and that way we populate heaven. Another implication of it is think about life in the world with a mentality that my objective is evangelism. And that's it. That is my priority. I'm after evangelism every day. Well, just suppose that uh, I'm a doctor. I happen to be a Ph.D., but let's just assume I'm an M.D. And um, you come to me for medical care. Okay? And my agenda is evangelism. So I went through medical school and I only did what I had to do to get by because I was about evangelism. And I was going to evangelistic functions and studying evangelism and trying to evangelize everywhere I could. But I, you know, so I just studied what I had to to get through medical school. And I've gone into private practice and I've done the same thing. I only do what I have to do to get by. 
I don't stay current on the, on the latest technology. I don't really care about meeting with my colleagues to talk about medicine. All I care about is evangelism. So you come to me and I say, you need surgery. And you agree to the surgery. So the day of the surgery, you're in the operating room. You're ready to be put under it. Here I walk in. And all these people are in the operating room. And my radar goes up about, okay, how can I share the gospel with all these people? Okay? You're sitting there on the operating table ready for surgery. I am focused on everybody else in the room because I want to share the gospel with them. How can I get this, pen, this little track I got in my pocket into their hand? How do you feel as a patient? Would you want a doctor like that? First of all, he's not even current, never was focused on medicine, and certainly not focused on me at a time he's getting ready to open me up. You see, the logical end of this kind of thinking is not good. In fact, if Pastor White were, were presented with this uh, situation, I would submit to you he wouldn't want to be operated on somebody whose chief priority was evangelism. So that makes his, his position problematic. Let me suggest to you an alternative perspective. Okay, a perspective that I think more lines up with Scripture. Some of you may have heard of Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper is arguably one of the greatest theologians of the last 150 years. He was a businessman. He was a publisher. And he became a scholar. And he became a politician. He became prime minister of the Netherlands. And throughout his career, he was a great student. He was a student of biblical worldview. In 1903, he was asked to come to the United States and deliver a series of lectures to Princeton University back when it was conservative. And his topic was Christianity, a total perspective on life. In other words, Christianity, a complete worldview of life. So in the course of these lectures, he was wrestling with the question, why are we here? Why did God make us, that is, human beings, both collectively as well as individually. Why did God make Larry and Larry and Dave? And why did he make us? And this is what he said in his lecture. He said, The chief aim of all human effort remains what it was by virtue of our creation before the fall, namely dominion of nature. All science is only the application to the cosmos of the powers of investigation and thought created within us, and art is nothing but the natural productivity of the potencies of our imagination. In other words, he saw in Genesis 1, verse 26, where it says, where it says of God, he says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule. He saw that was the reason that God made man. What you have here in Genesis 1 is a spirit being, a creator, and we know God's spirit from John 4, the spirit being creates a physical universe. And he puts all these things in place. He creates light. He creates, uh, he creates the light bearers. He creates the earth. He creates the land. He creates the sea. He creates the animals, the fish, the, the birds. He creates all of these things. And then he creates man. He says, now I want you to rule this physical creation. And the way I want you to do it is twofold. One is I want you to multiply and I want you to master this universe. This is the basis for research. The biblical basis for any research is Genesis 1. The reason research is efficacious and works is because God has set it up for it to work. We can study anything in nature we want to study, human behavior, medical science, physical science, biological science, 
business, finance, whatever you want, mathematics. God makes all of these rules for how these things work, and our job is to uncover them, to master them, to subdue them. That's why he made us. So what Kuiper's pointing out is the purpose for which man was put here. Now what happened was in Genesis 3, which is two chapters after Genesis 1, you have the fall, the fall of man. And with the fall of man, you have sin coming in, and a great deal of the rest of the Bible deals with the sin problem. Leading up to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus has been here and he dies for our sins, and he, he's resurrected from the dead, and now he's getting ready to go to heaven and tell us there's a new thing going on. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and now you're supposed to go make disciples. And so when you ask many people today, in fact, I was a meeting with pastors not long ago, and you know, no offense, David, but I like to play with pastors. You know, something in me is kind of sadistic. So I'm asking them, why are we here? And what do you think the pastor started saying? Well, the Great Commission. We're here to do the Great Commission. Now, many pastors interpret the Great Commission as the mandate to go evangelize the world. Okay? Do you know that's not really what it says? It doesn't say go evangelize the world. It says go and make what? Disciples. Disciples. Now certainly, to make a disciple, you have to do evangelism. But evangelization is just part of the process. It's the entry point. Because what happened, when you, when you signed up to become a Christian, you signed up to die. That's what happened. You signed up to die. You signed up to die to what you want to do and what's in your heart to now turn yourself over to live for God to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Now, so, after you go through those discussions about what the Great Commission really says, which that's usually interesting. A lot of pastors, I'm, I'm surprised at how many of them have not thought that through and seen that very clearly. But they're still focused on the Great Commission. So, so we get to the point where I'm saying to them, so you're, we're here to disciple. You agree, that's what we're here to do. Okay, is there anything else we're supposed to do? He said, no, that's pretty much it. We're here to disciple. We get back to that same old thinking that Christianity and kingdom living is all spiritual in nature, and we really don't have any physical responsibility. And then I say, well, what about Genesis 1? Have we forgotten about that? I mean, that tells us why we're here in the first place. And that generally creates some interesting ideas, like, I never thought about that. You know, what, what has that got to do with the Great Commission? And the reality is, Genesis 1 precedes the Great Commission. And the Great Commission did not eradicate Genesis 1. And so we've got to begin to get a picture of how they fit together. So as we think about God and man, we've got to understand that God is congruent. That is, he, he does everything as an integrated whole. So when he said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule, that still stands. That still stands, guys. We are here to rule. And at the same time, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's given us now eternal life through his son. So now we have, we have life you know, to deal with the sin problem, but we still have the responsibility to rule. So we have this situation here where we're supposed to be out and about ruling God's physical universe. We, we had a sin problem that popped up. God has set a solution to the sin problem. So now we have... As Christians, some victory over sin. So now what do we do? What do we do? Is God 
care enough about us to tell us what to do, how to rule his physical creation. Well, let me suggest he does. He's given us this handbook. This is the Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity. How many of you have ever studied this? You took a graduate course in this or, you know, y'all have seen this handbook? Y'all haven't seen this handbook? You haven't been to a seminar with this handbook? Will you learn business? Learn, learn how to work out of this handbook? Nobody has? Hey, well, we have it. We have the handbook. It tells us how to, how to organize companies, how to run companies, how to manage, how to hire people, how to fire people, how to price products, how, how to pay wages. It tells us all these things in here. Did you know that? All we got to do is pick it up. You know what this book is? We call it the Bible. But we don't think of it as the handbook for work. We don't think of it as the handbook for ruling God's creation because we don't apply it that way. Now, I want you to know the fact that we have this disconnect right now here in this place, in this time, doesn't mean the church has always had this disconnect. You can go back in history and find many examples where businessmen, government leaders, they, they leaned on this heavily. Absolutely. Our founding fathers, you know, the, when they ruled this country, they did not believe in separation of church and state like it's being articulated today. That was not their idea. Their, their idea of separation of church and state was to protect the church from the state. Today we've reversed it. It's as if we've got to protect the state from the church. So we've got it all backwards, which is why we're going down the tubes. If we go back and we look and see how they did things, you will learn when they had a problem. What they did is they went to the book, the handbook, and say, what does, the, what does God say through his Holy Spirit about this situation? And that's where they were looking for information. We've got to begin to do that. How many of you own a business? Let me suggest you need this handbook on your desk. And I'm going to suggest you put a cover on it just like I have. It's right there on your desk. So when, when you have a problem, I'm picking up the handbook to see what the handbook has to say. Okay? And you've got to begin to learn to do that. Now you might say, I don't have a clue where to turn. That's okay. You need to become a student of this book, which a large part of the role of the church is to teach you what's in this book so that when you're at work or you're at home or in your community and a problem comes up, you know where to go in the handbook to find guidance, to find God's principles. So God values us incredibly, and he's given us this wonderful handbook. And the handbook gives us a philosophy, a worldview. You know, every one of you has a worldview. Whether you know it or not, whether you care about it or not, you've got one. And you live out of that worldview. That worldview defines the way you act and you choose to see things every day. For example, your worldview gives you definitions of success. Do you know that? It defines success for you. How you view reality defines success. For many of us, success is things like making a lot of money, having a lot of toys, having a great reputation. And I'm not saying these are necessarily wrong, but I'm saying what we need to do if we want to define something, is we go to the book, the handbook. What does it say about success? And this would be a great discussion. And you know, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I have an answer. 
I have a perspective that I have gleaned by virtue of studying the handbook and asking the question. For example, to me, success is when I find provision to do what God has called me to do. And then I do it. That's success. When I'm doing what God's called me to do. Now let me give you another example. Provision and prosperity. Your worldview will define these terms for you. What is provision? Well, let me just suggest provision is what you need to do what you're called to do. That's provision. Now what's prosperity? What's prosperity? Is it having more than what you need to do what you're called to do? Is that, I mean, that would be kind of a logical definition, wouldn't you think? Let me suggest that prosperity is having what you need to do what you're called to do. Let me suggest there's no difference between provision and prosperity. Now, that's a brain lock. You say, how could that be? Well, let, let me just look at it this way. Is God intentional? Is this sovereign God intentional? If he's intentional, then if he's giving you something then there's an intended purpose, right? And if it's beyond what you think you need, is there a purpose? Yep. Okay. So it is really not beyond, it is provision to do something. Do we think that way? No, we don't think that way. Because we don't think like God, because we're not using the handbook. We still largely let the world define our worldview which means the definitions that we live by are defined by the world. The scripture talks about the five ways to use money. You guys know the five ways to use money? If you don't know the five ways to use money and you don't know God's order in the way those, those five ways of using money are to be done, then you're probably not using money right. Okay, And I would dare say, if this is a typical group like I run into, it's probably not one of you that's, that understands God's order for using money. I taught a class on finance recently, and um, we got to the five ways of using money. And, you know, I asked everybody, you know, what's the first and foremost thing for using mo uh, purpose for money? And what do you think everybody said? Consume. Everybody says consume. Can I say to you, that is the last thing on the list? The very bottom of the list. And yet the instinct of we human beings is to make it the top. Okay. Well, that's, don't have time to go on that. But that's to illustrate the point. We don't think like the handbook because we don't read the handbook. So we've got to go to the handbook to get our philosophy. The next thing, the values. The values that we want to practice, the ethics, the morals, where do they come from? So we just look out there and whatever the world's accepting, we need to be looking at the Bible. For example, the greatest of all values is love. And you get that from looking at the, the, uh, the time Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What do you say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second one is you love your neighbors yourself. So he tells you in those two principles, he encapsulates the value of love and says, that's it. I was doing a, uh, facilitating a uh, planning session for a client earlier this year, and this is a fairly... A new company in the sense of trying to incorporate biblical worldview in their thinking. And I'd already done a little bit of work with them to kind of prepare them. And so we were, got, we were doing the value statement, you know, trying to define the values. And I, and I said, I asked them, what is the most important value for this company? 
Well, you should have heard it. Well, you know, service and integrity and honesty and all this stuff. No, it's all good stuff. I said, what is the chief value? Okay? And I said, can I, su-, you know, I had to coach them a little bit. Can I suggest love? Now, how do you think they responded to that? Like, what? Love? What's love got to do with it? Okay? Now, what's happening here? You see, there's a disconnect that's happening here. Why can they not get it? The reason is their definition of love. Because when I said love to them, what do you think they thought? Ooey-gooey sexual love. That's what they're thinking. And I even said, hey, let me define love for you. Okay? Going to the handbook, asking how God defines love. And granted, there are three different kinds of love in Scripture, but I'm not, I'm not, talking, about, I'm not talking about eros. I'm not talking about philio, which is friendship. I'm talking about agape. The highest form of love. Does anybody know what that is? Nobody had a clue. These are all Christians in, in this management team. Nobody had a clue, which tells me they're either not good students or not well taught, and I don't know which. So I said, Gape love is laying down your life for somebody else. That's the love I'm talking about. It's not ooey-gooey. It's about sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what we're talking about. So when you begin to get love at that level and it begins to drive the value system of your organization, do you think it might be a, a pretty good value system? A value system now is not about me. It's about sacrifice. It's about service. Finally, your, your handbook has got to define your principles. The principles that you practice are nothing more than the way you express your values. Okay? Principles are ways that you express your value. For example, you express love by doing the golden rule. The golden rule is not a value, it's a principle. Treat others the way you want to be treated. But you are, in, you are incorporated in it the idea of agape love to do that. I'm going to treat you sacrificially. I'm going to subordinate myself for your highest good. That's what the golden rule is all about. So we've got to begin to get this handbook driving our thinking, our value system, our principles, so that we can transform our businesses, our families, our communities. I'd say this in our churches too. Okay? I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but you know, I travel around a good bit and I see a, a number of situations. I was with a pastor in Truckee, California, not too long ago, a godly man who is doing a good job in many, many ways. But, you know, some of these things we're talking about here, he doesn't understand. Let me talk to you a little bit about how we take the handbook and apply it a little more deeply. Give you an illustration. There are in Scripture three levels of work, or three kinds of workers, if you wish. And hopefully, you'll identify with these as we go through. You probably have been at this first level, okay, most everybody starts at this first level, it's called working for provision. Okay, Proverbs chapter uh, 16, verse 26 says, The laborer's appetite works for him, his hunger drives him on. This is where most people start. You know, what is it that drives people to go to work? They need money. 
Why do they need money? They, they need to buy clothes, food. They want to buy a hot rod. They want to take a girl on a date. You know, whatever. They want to, you know, buy something. So you need money. So it's all about provision. And that's, it's great that God has put it in the system. Otherwise, these people wouldn't work. You see that? And if they don't work, they don't get in the game of ruling. That's what they're here to do. You see how when you begin to see Scripture from God's perspective, you see how this all fits? Work is God's tool for us to begin to rule. So this is the very most basic level. If you hire people, particularly young people, this is where they start. They're not coming to you out of some deep passion saying, this is what God has called me to do. They're coming to you because saying, I need a job. I need to make money. So that's, that's the first level. The second level is working based on principle. Now, if you oversee people, you raise children, you manage people, you hire and fire people, whatever your level of relationship here is, you want to move people out of provision to principle as quick as you can. Now, the reason for it is when provision is the only motivation for work, principle is not that important to you. You can be very self-serving. It doesn't really matter that much that, you know, well, I kind of can be sloppy here and, you know, I fudge here and there. And you're just not that engaged with really doing quality work. So you want to move them very quickly from provision to principle. When they get to principle, suddenly it's not so much about the money. Yeah, I need to make money. Everybody needs to make money, but I'm really driven by something more than this. For example, Proverbs 22.1, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. Now, do you really believe that? Because the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you've gone into principle. If you reject that, you're not there. You're still at the provision level. It's still about money. How about this one? Proverbs 11.16, A kind-hearted woman gains respect... But ruthless men gain only wealth. How about that? Is, is there any doubt here that, that Solomon says what's really valuable here is this kind-hearted woman? That's what's valuable. Oh, wealth. Anybody can do that. But who is it that can be kind-hearted and build those relationships where people respect them? That's what's really important. So when you begin to get to the point where principle is the game and you're willing to sacrifice money for principle, then you're at this level. This is where my dad worked. In fact, I submit to you, every business that succeeds long-term, and this includes churches too, long-term is because they've at least gotten to this level. They've at least gotten to the point where principle is important. I mean, suppose you do business with a company and you can tell very quickly they don't give a rip about you. It's just about your money. You're not very fired up about going back, are you? I go places, I try to do business with people that really want to serve me, which means the principle of serving me trumps my money. They're more concerned that I have a good experience and they have, they have a good reputation than making a dollar bill for me. This car dealership that I, do, that I do business with that services my car, I'm kind of amazed at the service they give me. They will give me a free loan car, which I can drive over all over North Texas, not charge me a dime for it, and they do a 30 or $40 oil change. I mean, I just put, put 200 miles on their vehicle. There's no way they made a dime. 
but they have no concern about that. Their objective is to give me a quality experience at the dealership of taking care of my car and taking care of me. Because they know in the end that builds loyalty in me. And guess what? When I go buy a new car, you know what's going to happen? I'm going back to them. See, that's principle thinking. Now, but there's a third level here. And this is a great level. This is the level that only Christians can get to. You see, there are a lot of moral people out there that can live on principle. There are a lot of unsaved people that are fairly principled people. And thank the Lord for it. Otherwise, we would have a really chaotic society. I'm grateful that through the common grace of God, I can go most any place and be reasonably secure that I'm not going to be poisoned or shot. Okay, that's the grace of God. If sin were allowed to be fully manifest, you couldn't go down the street without getting shot. You couldn't go to a restaurant without getting poisoned. You couldn't trust the food you bought at the store. You couldn't trust that your car would be repaired properly, your brakes would work. You couldn't trust anything if it weren't for the fact that God allows unsaved people by His common grace to get to a point of principle and living by principle. So thank God for common grace and for principled people. But there's a higher level, and we Christians should be living at the very highest level. And that is walking in the power of the Spirit at work. This is the highest level. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of sinful nature. Romans 8 verse 6 says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. You see, we have a privilege by being tapped into God through His Holy Spirit to live beyond principle, to live way beyond provision, to live at a level where we have communion with God and we can ask God, God, what do you want to do in this particular situation? How do, how do I deal with this customer? How would I deal with this employee? How do I deal with this problem? We have access to the creator of the universe to guide us and direct us in our work. But we have got to, we've got to tap into that reality. Most of us think when we go to work on Monday morning, it really has very little to do with the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're lying to ourselves. We have got to begin to embrace the Holy Spirit as an integral part of our workday where we are continually praying and interceding, asking for wisdom and direction and discernment. Well, you know what I was doing driving over here? And by the way, I consider this part of my work People like to talk about my, my ministry, and that's okay, but to me, my work is my ministry. It's all the same. It's what I do. I get up every day and I do the same thing. I'm going to try to help people learn how to walk with God at work. That's what I do. When I walk into a company, a $20 million company, a $1 million company, a $50 million company, it doesn't matter what, how big they are, how many employees they've got. I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to bring biblical reality into this situation. So when I come to you, I, it's like going to work on Monday. On the way over here, what am I doing? Lord, would you give me wisdom today to hear what you want to say to these men? I'm asking. Okay? I do that every day. When I'm going to see a client, Lord, what do you want me to say to this client? What is it you're doing here that I need to tune into, that I need to see so I can line up with you? And that's how we need to be living our life. If you're going out fixing cars, Lord, give me wisdom to do a really good job to be sure I've understood the problem, diagnosed it properly, and I'm fixing it well. Have you and me all had an experience where you got frustrated and you couldn't solve a problem? 
And you step back and say, Lord, I give. And then all of a sudden it all begins to come together. You know, when I was a graduate student, I'm in a lab, physics lab at UT, and I have, a, I have a plasma here that I'm analyzing with a spectrometer. And this spectrometer is probably as nearly as tall as this ceiling here, and from me to that wall, and it's probably from that wall to here. It's a big instrument. It's setting up on four big legs, these posts that are about that big around, about a, you know, a foot or so off the ground. Well, what happens is light from this plasma, I've got, I've got these lenses focusing the light on this slit into this instrument, and it goes in, it bounces around inside the instrument, and it shines on a little, a little device here that, that records you know, the intensity of the light for a given wavelength. And so the, the alignment of the optics is very important. And something had gone wrong with the alignment, and I don't know what it was. But, so I began to fiddle with it. Okay, and this is on a Friday afternoon. I start fiddling with it, okay? And all of a sudden, and this, in the back of it, there's this huge mirror. It's about six big around. It's real heavy. I'm, I'm, I'm working with these little Allen screws, trying to tweak it and get it just, just right. And all of a sudden, I could hear that mirror go, plump. I don't know what happened, but I knew I was in deep trouble. <laughs> oh, Lord, what are we going to do now? And so I turned around to you know, check, and sure enough, it is really out of a line now, and I don't know what I did. Oh, this is late Friday afternoon, so I go home, and I am just depressed because all I could see is my supervising professor is about to eat me for breakfast Monday morning when he finds out about this because to fix this thing, we're going to have to fly a technician down from Boston that's going to cost an arm and a leg, you know, plus... That's just to get him here. And then the daily rate for him to get in here and fix this, I mean, I could see thousands of dollars, and he's going to be all over me for this because it's not in the budget. I'm in a ditch, man. I go home, and, and I'm, I'm newly married. This is many, many years ago. And, but I was, I was in the Lord at that time, and I knew to seek the Lord. So I just began praying. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do here. This thing is beyond me. And I just began to worship, and I began to read Scripture, and I began to... I had some tapes I listened to. It took about 30 minutes, and all of a sudden, this depression broke. Just broke. And I just felt peace. And I didn't know what the solution was this thing, but I, I just knew it was going to be okay. And it didn't matter. Whatever had to happen it was going to be okay. So I was able to go through the weekend in peace. And then Monday morning, I walk into the lab... And I still have no clue what's wrong. And I walk over to this instrument, and with one little turn of the screw, everything goes back into alignment. I said, wow. Unbelievable. And to this day, I still don't know what happened or why, but I know that whole thing was about me and about humbling me before God. I'm going to submit to you, that's why a lot of us have these problems that we have. It's about humbling us before God so that we can begin to lean on Him and the handbook. Because, see, I went to the handbook. And I went to the handbook and asked the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom. And He gave me peace. And then Monday morning, He supernaturally gave me just what to do. And I can't tell you to this day. I don't know why I went and turned that particular screw a half a turn. I don't know why I did that. I just did it. And all of a sudden, it's, it's okay again. I'm saying, wow, I'm not touching it. <laughs> Guys, we've got to learn something. Our work is our witness. Our work is our witness. I'm going to read to you Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interpret this as we go through it. I think this is really important for you to see. This is a verse that so clearly ties work with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, teach slaves, and you see parenthesis workers, to be subject to their masters, parenthesis managers, and everything. Now he's going to give you three keys now that are going to lead to you being a positive witness in the workplace. First key, try to please them. Now the Greek word there is show up. That's what the Greek word is. It is show up. So the first step in being a good worker is you've got to be present. You've got to be there. How many of you got people that just can't get them to show up? It's a problem, isn't it? They just, no way. If you can't show up, you can't do anything. So that's the first step. You have got to please them by showing up. The next step is, watch your tongue. He says, not talk back. The word is Anti-lego. Anti is against. Lego is word. Don't be pushback. Don't speak against. Don't contradict. Don't fight them with your mouth. So the second step in being a great witness is watching your tongue. Now, But that's not sufficient. You can be there and you can be biting your tongue and your heart can be a mess. Has anybody been there? You know, I'm resentful, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and I want to tell you how bad you are, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to smile, you know, and act like everything's cool, but that's not enough. The third thing you have got to do is you have got to look at your motives. It says not to steal from them, but to show that, that they can be fully trusted. And the word there suggests no self-serving, no self-dealing. In other words, I am showing up for work, I am present, I am watching my tongue, and I am watching my heart to be sure my agenda is to serve this organization to the best of my ability. My personal agenda is subordinated to the agenda of the whole. Okay? That's huge, guys. If you've got workers like this, you've got at least principled workers, you might have a worker working in the power of the Spirit. Okay. So when you do this, look what happens. So that in every way you may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Attractive. Now this is the word cosmeo. Does anybody recognize the derivative of cosmeo? Like cosmetics? It's about setting in order, arranging, adorning, embellishing. What we are doing by virtue of living, by being present, by minding our tongue and having the right motives, is we are making Jesus attractive. We are the sweet savor of Jesus in that place. Because guess what? Whether you want to tell people or not, they know you're a Christian. You may never say it to anybody. I one time had a guy I, I did business with. He and I did a lot of, lot of business together over a number of years. And then I left the business, and about five years later, he calls me one day. And he says, I'm calling you to tell you something. I said, okay, what do you want to tell me? I'm calling you to tell you I have become a Christian, and it's largely because of you. I said, what? I, I said, I, you know, I appreciate that, but did we ever talk about the gospel? And he said, no, we never talked about the gospel. 
He said, but I could tell that you were a Christian. I saw the way you worked. I saw your principles and your values and how you were true. You were a man of integrity. I could count on you and I knew it would be done right. You did great work. I never had to worry about anything. Any project we did with you, I knew it would be done very well. I knew you were a Christian. And so when I got into the depths of my despair just a few months ago and became so aware of my inadequacies, I knew I needed help and I remembered you. You were a man that walked at the level I wanted to walk at. And so I went to church and I found out the secret. I found out about Jesus and I wanted to call and tell you that I'm a Christian because of you. I said, wow, that is amazing. Now that's making the Savior attractive. It all happened in the context of work. He didn't think about going to a church until he's in the ditch and he remembers me. He says, there's something about him that I want and I know whatever it is, is I'm going to find it at church. You see how this works, guys? Our work is absolutely critical. Every one of us has a sphere of influence that we can touch, and we can go make Jesus attractive in that sphere if we can learn to work this way. There's a family. They're going on a trip, and they're, they're driving along the highway, and it's in the afternoon, and it's, it's a family, a very typical family. You've got um, a husband, wife, and a daughter and son. And the daughter and the, the wife decide, we're kind of hungry. Why don't we stop and uh, get something to eat? So they see this fruit stand. And then they say, stop here. So the husband pulls in, he stops, and the husband and the boy stay in the car, and the, the daughter and the mother go out and get in. And, of course, the husband says, hurry up, we've got a long way to go, and, you know, we're running out of daylight here, so don't take long. So they're sitting there with the car running, the air conditioning going, and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And finally, you know, he says, Hey, what is taking them so long? So he jumps out of the car. He goes into the fruit stand. And as soon as he walks into the fruit stand, he's just mesmerized by what he sees. First of all, there's all these people there in there looking at all this fruit. Secondly, everything is so neat and orderly. And it's just beautiful. And the, the, the aroma is so nice and inviting. And so he begins to kind of look through at the fruit. He says, wow, this is really good fruit. And, you know, being a little bit cynical, he says, let me, let me see. I'm going to dig a little deeper here and see if the rotten stuff is at the bottom. Well, the fruit at the bottom is really good. There's not a bunch of insects and, you know, you know junk on the floor. And he says, wow, this is good stuff. And so then he turns and he, he looks at the man behind the, the cash register, which he assumed to be the owner. And the man is standing there with the most pleasant look on his face. There's peace. There's a smile. And he is just answering questions and checking people out and it's just such a, a, a warm and inviting atmosphere. And then he looks at the prices and he thought, this is a really first class fruit stand. These prices have got to be sky high. He looks at the prices and says, wow, those are very fair prices. In fact, they're almost cheap. There must be something wrong here. That's just too cheap. This is too nice a place. The fruit's too good here. It can't be that cheap. So, he looks around some more, digs down, and he can't find anything wrong. Everybody in the, in the, in the stand is very happy and enjoying their fruit and, and bagging it up and going out the door, very much at peace and just enjoying this experience. So he goes over to the fruit stand uh, owner and he says, those prices seem pretty reasonable. He said, well, thank you. I want them to be reasonable. 
He says, they seem almost cheap. He says, well, you know, they're as cheap as I can make them uh, given the overhead I've got here to support. He said, well, you're obviously doing something right. And uh, he said, would you like to check out? He said, yes. So he, he brings his fruit there and he checks out and everything. And he pays his money and starts walking out the door with his wife and daughter and his son. And, and he stops and he says, he turns around and he says, I just can't help but tell you what a wonderful experience this has been. I walked in the door all frustrated and angry and I'm walking out with joy and peace in my heart. This has been an incredible experience. I want to thank you very much. And the fruit stand owner said, well, I thank you. I said, are you the owner? He said, well, not really. We said, well, who is the owner? He said, well, the owner is the Lord. The Lord? Yeah, the Lord. How can the Lord be the owner? Well, the Lord owns everything. Oh, really? You mean the Lord owns my car? He said, yeah, the Lord owns your car. So what does that make me? He said, you're a steward. So is that what you are? He said, yeah, I'm a steward. This, this fruit stand belongs to the Lord. I'm his steward. It's not mine. But I love the Lord so much, I cannot stand it if this fruit stand isn't done with excellence. I want every interaction to be excellent. I want everything to be done with excellence because I so thank the Lord for what he has done for me. And so that man and that family walked out of that fruit stand impacted by the power of Jesus Christ because somebody worked like God wanted it to work. That's what we can do, guys. That's how we can live if we choose to live that way. You count, and your work counts in the kingdom of God. That's important. You've got to get that. Uh, I'm telling you, I, I run into this all the time. Most, work, most people in the marketplace don't really believe their work counts. They think the only work that counts is what happens up here at church. And I'm telling you that's wrong. Church is, an, is the equipping center for us, you and me, to go out and minister in the marketplace. And we minister by ruling God's creation with excellence. God values his physical creation. It's important to him. Sometimes we act like God doesn't care anything about the physical. He only cares about the spiritual. God made the physical, and if you go back in Genesis 1, after each day, what did he say? It's good. And at the end, he said, it is very good. God made a very good physical reality. And he put all the principles in place for us to rule it and rule it well. And he wants us to do that. And he values you. You count. There's not a person in this room that was born for any other purpose than to obey and walk with God. God created you specifically to do his bidding. So your work to rule his creation and the, the guidance that you need to do that is provided right here. As we begin to grab hold of this as our handbook for all of life, and we begin to get it that our work counts and we're important in God's kingdom, suddenly we've got the tools and we have the motivation and we have the worldview we need to make a difference and to advance the kingdom of God in our workplace. Lord, give us the grace to do that and do it well. We hope you've been challenged by this podcast to consider biblical work principles in the workplace. For more information, visit strategieswork.com or to give feedback or sign up for our newsletter, please send an email to podcast at strategieswork.com. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time.